0: This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. So I was on my Peloton bike this morning. It's actually not a Peloton bike. It's my regular bike, and I just train with the Peloton app. And the woman who is leading my class is clearly not uh, not primarily an instructor. She's actually a professional cyclist. She's like, when I was riding in the world championship, this was what was going through my mind. And it was an enlightening moment for me because when I look at elite athletes, Olympians, and people showing up at world championships, I go, you've probably got this mind that's a steel trap. You probably feel no pain. You probably feel no doubt. And actually, she was saying, let me tell you some of the strategies I use to manage doubt, to manage uncertainty, to increase my resilience, to help me get through what it means to race in a world championship bicycle race. And listening to her this morning was such a perfect introduction for my guest today, because Bonnie St. John is a former Olympian, and I'm very excited to introduce you to her. Despite having her right leg amputated at the age of five, Bonnie St. John became the first African-American ever to win medals in the Winter Olympic competition, taking home her silver and two bronze medals at the 1984 Winter Paralympics in Innsbruck, Austria. Today, Bonnie travels the globe as a keynote speaker, a Fortune 500 leadership expert, and the best-selling author of seven books. Bonnie graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, earned a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. You know, I'm a, I'm a Rhodes Scholar as well, but you'll understand why I feel lucky being a Rhodes Scholar when you meet people like Bonnie. You're like, how did Michael win anything here? <laughs> um, Bonnie also served in the White House as a director of the National Economic Council during the Clinton administration. And NBC Nightly News called Bonnie one of the five most inspiring women in America. How awesome is that, Bonnie? It's so nice to be talking to you.
1: Thank you. It's great. I wish we could be face-to-face, but uh, it's great to be voice-to-voice.
0: Exactly. It is. And I know, I mean, we've met uh, several times because we both lead training companies and learning and development companies. But I actually first came across you because of your book on micro-resilience. And I know that you have a real expertise in micro-resilience. So I'm just curious to know, There's so much, because we're in the middle of the pandemic right now, there's so much being talked about around um, resilience. What are the tired old tropes about resilience that you hear that drive you nuts?
1: Well, I I don't know if it's a tired old trope, but if you Google resilience or resilience research, what you get is a lot of uh, good material, but it addresses people being down and out. So resilience traditionally means you are down, and you're trying to get back to normal. So if right. you if you think mathematically, you can think of it as a zero axis, and you went below the zero axis, and you're trying to just get back to zero.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When we set out to research and write about resilience, and we coined the term micro resilience, we were interested in people who were way above the zero line, people who were doing well, high achievers, you know, Olympic athletes, um, being resilient in those conditions. So right. one of the stories I'm most well known for is talking about how I fell down at the Olympics I was skiing I fell down in the slalom got back up finished the race and still won the bronze medal. <laughs> and so that kind of resilience when you're at the top of your game you've been training for years you know this is the competition of a lifetime yeah. and you fall and get back up and still win a medal that's the kind of resilience that that we are we have been researching and testing and, and working on under the heading of micro-resilience.
0: I know you must have told this story many, many times, but I'd love just to understand in that moment as you're in Innsbruck and you're skiing and you fall, What did anything go through your mind or was it just a kind of automatic kind of reaction to just get back on your feet and just to pick up speed again?
1: You know, I think, of course, you I was disappointed. And I'm thinking, Oh, my gosh, I've blown it. You know, I've this was I've trained for this for years. And, you know, and and my, my teammates, my sponsors, my mother is in the audience, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, this is horrible. And you just you I just wanted to disappear. You know, if I could have just, you know, zapped myself away, (laughs) and, you know, I would have done it. But my body was the training that you do takes over. And Mm. so, even though my mind was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I've lost, my body was already getting up and going over the finish line. So it's, wow. you're, you're, you rely on your training in those moments. Uh, that's why we train.
0: That's why we train. How did the idea of micro resilience come up for you? I mean, because it's the first time I'd heard of it and it's such an, you we kind of immediately have an aha moment. It's the first time oh. you heard
1: of it because we coined the term, it's us. Yeah. Um, it's, uh. We were interested in resilience and, and people asked me uh to speak on resilience and at one point I made a decision that uh I was going to just, you know, dig into this and really scour the research and, and look at uh you know, what is everything we know about resilience and what is my point of view. Yeah. And um and you know, and that comes not just from being an Olympic athlete, but having my leg amputated when I was five years old. Um and not, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I was, I was abused. I was sexually abused by my stepfather. And having to be resilient around that, you know, is a whole nother thing. So I've had to be physically, um, emotionally, mentally resilient in so many different ways. I grew up in San Diego, California and became a ski racer. You know, I mean,
0: it's like, it makes no sense whatsoever. you You can't make this up,
1: right? You know, it's just ridiculous. So I have been so resilient. People were asking me, you know, how how do you how can you be so resilient? And so we set out to really dig into the research. And I used uh, some of I had read research and used it for myself over the years. And I had I had dug into different paradigms. But then we you know we scoured physiology and uh, positive psychology research out of uh, uh, UPenn and. Uh, yep. So uh, physiology, psychoneuroimmunology, you know, lots of different branches of research to look at, uh, you know, how can we be more resilient? And what really turned the corner for me to to think about micro resilience was some research that had been done on tennis players and why certain tennis players win are the most winningest tennis players. So when you look at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open, you know, there's Mm -hmm. 100 players, but you're only reporting on a handful and what yep. puts you in that handful? And so this researcher was um, looking at what they did and he couldn't find it. You know, certainly somebody, you know, serves faster or runs faster. They have different skills. But he wanted to know what's the common factor that puts you in that top echelon. And he didn't see anything until he looked at what they did between the points. Right. And it's, and it's interesting because he never really published this study so I had to go back to him and interview him he, and, and ask him, you know, you know what, what was really going on there? And it's these micro behaviors that the players do between the points. And it can be little things like putting your racket in your your non-dominant hand to rest your hand. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about 20 seconds, 30 seconds between each point. Um, he they, they had certain self-talk that they used. They got their heart rate down to an optimal rate. Um, they, right. they didn't get distracted by the crowd. There were, there were certain little micro behaviors they were doing. And so he wrote about that and, and talked about it. And now, uh, in tennis camps, they teach it, you know, it's well known in the tennis world, but we, with the book micro resilience, we really wanted to take that idea for the rest of us in the world of work, or if you're working from home, how yeah. do you implement those little tiny behaviors between the points that help you to maintain your focus, drive and energy and, and not get exhausted and, 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 you know, wiped out as fast as your opponent or the other
0: players. I love that. Is it, is it, am I understanding it as a way of kind of uh, a reset of where you are, or is it something slightly different from just a, a reset?
1: Well, what do you mean by a reset?
0: I don't know. I, I, I feel like, so if I imagine myself playing tennis, um, I finish a point point. And I'm feeling, I, and I probably finish feeling either elevated or not elevated because I've either won the point and I'm like, I'm awesome yeah, <laughs> or exactly. I've lost the point or I'm oh. like, ah, I, I blew it. Oh.
1: Well, either one of those things can be very distracting, right? So you're going, right. you're going into the next point and if you're focused on, oh, I messed up the last point, you know, you can be very distracted. Or if you're so focused on, I won the last point, you can be very distracted. So it's, it is, it's about sort of clearing your palate between courses, right? Nice. Quickly, <laughs> but, but doing it, you know, you only have love 10, that. 20 seconds to do it and to move into the next point fully focused. Your, a, your
0: your work is the lemon sorbet in the mindfulness buffet of life. I okay, love that.
1: I'm stealing that. <laughs> right now, I'm stealing that. I like that. Um,
0: That's perfect.
1: For me as a ski racer, you have, you know, turn, 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 turn is what you're doing. Yes. And um, you you have the same problem as the tennis players is you need to always be very focused on the next turn. You need mm. to, you need to with a, say, say, are you a skier?
0: I've skied. It would be an overstatement to say that I'm a skier.
1: So, when you're racing, you have to stay early in the turns. And that's a whole thing. If you, get, if you start slipping later and later, it becomes impossible to recover from. So, you, mm-hmm. you want to you stay early in the turn. So, there's certain things that you're, you're thinking about doing. And I would be so focused on the next turn and what I'm doing. And you can't dwell on the last turn or what went wrong right. or what went right or anything. By the time I got to the bottom, I would get over the finish line and I could not remember anything that had happened. Right. Because I was so, I was, you know, it's like you're throwing it overboard as you go. Um, So It it really feels like
0: a, a mindfulness practice in many ways, which is like you keep resetting to the here and the now and you be in the moment and you let the past go and you don't over anticipate the present to allow yourself to be able to make the turn both literally and metaphorically
1: that's certainly part of it in sports is uh and i and i did use uh, my own meditation techniques and things to do that for the the resilience we are looking at different things so we're looking at at uh things that help your brain things mm. that help your physiology things that help you to not trigger your fight or flight instincts as much so we looked at research in a lot of different areas and took the things that That had an immediate impact. So that's why we called it micro. Um, A lot of things that that help your resilience are things you do habitually. So getting regular exercise, eating right, getting enough sleep. You know, there's a lot of things that if you didn't do them all the time, it wouldn't, you know, just one night of sleep isn't gonna help you. You need to have a habit of good sleep, right? So we we micro is the opposite of that. That's what we called macro. We wanted to look at things that if you did it today, you would get a benefit today. And and that immediate immediacy uh, is great. It's it's uh, it's like catnip for people, right? We all like immediacy right now.
0: One of the things that I loved about the book uh, Micro Resilience, Bonnie, is you know you have different tools under the five different headings. The headings are refocus your brain, reset your primitive alarms, reframe your attitude, refresh your body, and renew your spirit. And I'm wondering, I mean, they're all juicy. We could probably talk for about twenty five <laughs> hours on each one of these, but. I'm particularly interested in reframing your attitude. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, as it's interesting. So reset was as you say is about your primitive alarms or or your fight or flight instincts, right? And dampening that so it's it's not spiraling to the negative as much. So reset helps right. you not spiral to the negative. Reframe, we design to help you strengthen your muscles towards the positive. And there's it can sound very Pollyanna, but there's a lot of Good research around uh, having stronger muscles for the positive helps you with diversity at work and, and dealing with different kinds of people. It, um, it helps you to stay in your advanced brain, your prefrontal cortex so you yes. have more access to higher order thinking and creative problem solving and you know there's there's a lot of really science-based benefits to being able to strengthen your muscles for the positive. So that's what the reframe framework is about.
0: Now I may get, I may get this wrong, Bunny. you know, the research better than I, but I remember reading somewhere that most of us have a, a preset genetically determined happiness level. And we kind of, you know, I I like, I'm wired to be mostly happy. I know there are other people who are wired to be less happy. Um, is the attitude similar? Do we have a kind of do we have a set kind of in our body? Point. Yeah, a fr- set
1: point that we return to. Yeah. Um, another way of saying it is: there's the hardiness research. There's a lot of research on hardiness of attitude, and right. and that we do have an inherited uh, level of of where that is. But I think it's like um, you know some people have the inherited body type of a great athlete, and some don't. And yet (laughs) like
0: you for (laughs) one and me for the other. (laughs) No, and
1: I and I don't necessarily. And and you can you can look in different sports and not everybody has the exact body type that that it was designed for. And sometimes we get really excited when somebody wins who maybe didn't have the perfect genetic endowment to have won in that sport. And so we can do better than our genetics would indicate. And yep. I think that's what you're looking for uh with resilience as well is you don't just have to plop down and say, "Well, this is what I was given. you know we all can go to the gym and get a little stronger than we are. You know we can all do a little right. bit better than whatever our genetic endowment is, so yes, there is a range of sort of attitude inherit what, what we inherited in terms of attitude, yep. but we can always do better than that. We can always strengthen it
0: so is there a tool that you could share with me around? Um, if I'm looking to reframe my attitude, because you know, part of what I'm really taking from micro resilience is sure there's these ongoing habitual behaviors that will help get more sleep, eat well, <laughs> exercise. That just kind of sets you up for a foundation of success. But part of the the brilliance of micro resilience is like in the moment you can make these adjustments that make a difference. Pretty much right away.
1: Thank you. You put that you put that so well and and I think it's so important because even if you were really good at all the kind of overall habits, even if you exercise well and you drink water regularly and you do all these things, there's still moments or right. parts of the day that, that you get thrown off and things go badly or there's a shock or a surprise and you, you need to deal with that and the the better you deal with that, the more you're going to be able to make sure you go home and sleep well and eat right, and you know as opposed to go home and say, "I want a pizza and a beer yeah <laughs> um, exactly and so so it, they, they they uh affect each other and and the ability to to uh meet the shocks and drains and upsets that we have are is crucial,
0: yeah, so here I am, Bonnie. Like I slept well last night. I actually had a protein smoothie for breakfast. I actually spent time on my Peloton bike. So I've done all the long-term things. But something happened just before this call that's just left me feeling annoyed and frustrated. (laughs) Help help me. (laughs) There are
1: 21 different micro hacks in the book. But but an example of what would be a great one for that is there's, uh, we talk about having a first aid kit for your attitude. Nice. And, and yeah, it's so funny. Even you, you just get it. Uh, We didn't call it in the book. In the book, we called it a joy kit. But uh, we started saying, calling it a first aid kit for your attitude because like you just get it immediately. We have first aid kits for a cut or a bruise or a burn. Right. And we, you know, you don't know when you're going to need it, but you have it ready in the same way you can be ready for when you take a hit with your attitude, you know, and it can be you're in sales and, you know, you've been working on a big sales project and you lose the deal. Um, it could be uh, a deadline for a proposal you're supposed to put together uh, gets moved and you suddenly have to do, stay up all night and get something done. You know, it can be on the home front. It could be yeah. um, somebody in your family gets sick in an unexpected way. Uh, and uh, that can be very scary. Um, you know, so it could be any kind of a shock that happens. And just as you gave the example, you know, you're all healthy, you've done everything right, but suddenly this shock lands in your lap. Yeah. And, um, the research shows that we tend to, you know, trigger our fight or flight mechanisms. And then we're not thinking as clearly, we don't have access to all of our brainstorming and ideating and, uh, sure. the ability to have good solutions. Exactly. So- when
0: it all goes back down to that little amygdala, exactly. everything, everything comes like primitive. It's like, yeah. I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm in survival mode here.
1: So, um, so we talk about having a first aid kit for your attitude and you can, you want to put that together when you're not in a state of shock, right? And exactly. be ready, just like the first aid kit for, uh, for whatever happens. And so you put things in the kit that are going to help you turn your attitude around. And what I've come to realize is, it, you know, somebody said, why don't you sell first aid kits for your attitude? Well, <laughs> it depends on what you want to put in it. You know, what right. is going to help your attitude is different than necessarily what's going to help mine. That's so, really helpful. I can put in. I, I I like chocolate and peanut butter in my first, <laughs> but um, but also I had a note from my mother that said uh, cherish yourself,
0: That's and beautiful. she had yeah. my
1: mother passed away a number of years ago. But um, she had that old fashioned penmanship. You know, they took penmanship yeah. in school. And so it was <laughs> I
0: remember writing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she had this beautiful longhand writing that sits here. And her right, you know, I, her writing was so recognizable to me. Sure. And just, um, you know, had that impact. Also, my mother was somebody who had a very rough life. I mean, we can get really serious here. She was black in the South. Yeah. And when she was growing up, she actually, there were lynchings in her town. I mean, I, it, it, she, she had a she came up through a rough, rough yeah. life, and so when she she gave me this sachet with a note that said "cherish yourself," and that just meant so much to me. That you know, she tried so hard. She she had uh, so many demons, and she wrote affirmations, and you know, she li- believed in positivity and and so much. So anyway, so having something that helps you put whatever's happening in the moment into perspective. And so it's something we all have different things that can do it for us, whether it's chocolate, peanut butter, or a note from your mother who passed away 10 years ago.
0: (laughs) I'll share the two things that, that come to mind for me. One's a physical thing. One's a memento. So on my desk, I have a card from my friend, Kate, who's British. And on the front of the card, it just says, you magnificent bastard. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and you kind of, it, it really helps if you understand the English sensibility to hear that because yes. it, it may not land exactly. But for me, I can absolutely hear Kate saying that and it, it lifts my spirits every time. Um, and then the other thing is I got from um, a writer called uh, Benjamin Zander many years ago. He wrote a book called The Art of Possibility and he's a conductor um, and a charismatic speaker. He's on the He was on the keynote speaking circuit for quite a while. And he said, look, whenever anything goes off the rails, and it will, because that's life, what he does, and he recommended it to others, and I loved it as a tool, is you throw your hands up in the air and you say, how fascinating. (laughs) And part of, I think, the genius of that is twofold. One is that it's a physical shift of state. So if you like Amy Cuddy's work, it's like you kind of lift, elevating all sorts of things, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your blood, brain chemicals, all happens in that moment of lifting your hands up and saying how fascinating takes you into a place of curiosity and lightness rather than deadening certainty. <laughs> yeah, you're just going, isn't this interesting? As opposed to we're doomed. And I think it, it's, it's a brilliant combination of a physical and mental flip that can really lighten the mood. The, the mood.
1: That's great. That's absolutely great. And it's interesting. Um, another tool that we talk about in the book is uh, PPP to CCC. And that's kind of like when you say it puts you in a state of curiosity. Um, that tool that we cite in the book comes out of the uh, research from uh, UPenn. And uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. The, yeah, the I know word.
0: exactly hey, the the pessimism the, the, to the guru of positive psychology. Yes, exactly, yeah.
1: thank you. And it, and he talks about going from PPP, which is you think of something negative as personal, permanent, and prevalent. Right. It's yeah. never going to change, and you shift yourself into thinking: um, How can I? Uh, what What can I do to change this? What can I? What do I still have power over? You know what. What can I do to pivot around this? And so, throwing your hands up and, and being curious is is a great example of shifting out of that negative thinking into the more positive thinking. So those there's so many great pieces yeah. in there that that uh, that come together. There's there's good science behind what you're saying as well. So perfect. With, with the and first aid kit, uh,
0: and Martin Seligman is the name we were both not remembering.
1: Marty, Marty Seligman, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So with the first aid kit, though, I want to highlight that it's, yeah. it's a great tool. Uh, if you work at home to share with your family, I've done this with, with fourth graders where I get them to make a first aid kit for their attitude. They get it. It's such a simple concept. And you talk about, you know, what would help you think more positively? You know, I put blank thank you notes in the box too. So on a day when you're struggling, get out a blank thank you note and write a thank you note to somebody. And it shifts your attitude, you know, towards the positive. You can do it with your team. And in fact, um, I'd be happy. I have a, a, a instruction kit that I wrote up for people of how to do a team building event around having a first aid kit for your attitude. Because when you share the concept with your team, you can support each other. You know, even if right. you're working virtually, you can share pictures. Uh, we actually, uh, for for a virtual team that I have. We made a photo album, you know, they, on your phone, you can have these shared yep. photo albums. And so people are posting things into the shared photo album and it's kind of like a virtual joy kit. Oh, for that's great. Teams. But I'm happy to share the uh, this recipe book, the instruction book for a virtual uh, team building event around having first aid kits. Because,
0: Perfect. Yeah, because well, look, when uh, you
1: share uh, the concept, it's you can reinforce each other so much.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to ask you for that URL so people can go there and download it in just a moment. Um, before we go there, one of the things that we talked about just briefly before we hit the record button was this whole idea of zones and how you can set up physical zones where you work, whether that if you're sheltering at home at the moment or if you're going more broadly than that. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that? Because that sounds really interesting.
1: It's so interesting because you you said physical zones. Actually, you know what? And there was one thing I've made a note on the the last thing we talked about. Sorry, is just for your first aid kit. Be careful about putting it all on your desk. So you talked about what's on your desk oh, because yes. you tend to become immune to seeing it. So right. so sometimes with the first aid kit, it's good to have it in a drawer or uh, in a bag if you're at home or 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 some people even do it on their phone and have quotes nice. or. Uh, thank you notes or something in a file. So anyway, just just having it out all the time—that's really helpful. Into it. So sorry. So back to the zones. Is um, you said physical zone, and it doesn't necessarily have to be physical. Uh, one of the great examples that I I heard was in a hospital when a nurse is out dispensing medicine, if she gets interrupted uh, you know, she's going to make mistakes. And so it's really important that she's in a zone, but it can't uh, be a physical right. place that she can just go shut herself off in. So what they did in this one hospital is they put a sash on a nurse who's dispensing medicine. So she that's is right. not to be interrupted. So it's, it's really more of a signal not to be interrupted than, than necessarily a physical place. And, oh, and, that's so interesting. and now that we have so many open plan offices, you know, it's a challenge. I know one, uh, workplace where they have, um, like a flag that you can put up or down. If your flag's up, don't interrupt. Yes. You know? And so so it's it's more of a signaling thing about don't <laughs> interrupt. If you can make it a physical place, great, but we don't yeah. always have that luxury to to do that. But it comes from the research on our brains when we get interrupted a lot, it's fine as long as you don't need quality, accuracy or innovation. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I love folding laundry in front of TV. Hey, that's fine, you know. But when it comes to certain projects that we're working on, if it requires quality, accuracy, or innovation, and we're getting interrupted a lot, we're going to make more errors and it's just going to take five times as long. They one study even says it's like lowering your IQ, yeah, you know. So, so having so
0: much research about how terrible open plan offices have actually turned out to be, even though they they've seemed like such a good idea. And then they're like, actually, no, not so much.
1: Well, it's good for team building. Uh, there's one office, I was at the eBay office, eBay headquarters in New York, and they have conference rooms for one. So you're in that open plan office, but you can sign up and go into a conference room for one right. when you need to focus. So it's just about having a way to focus and being aware that you need to carve that time out and it will save you so much time and energy when you're able to create zones. And I have discovered in talking about this over time that one of the keys to being successfully using zones is having a threshold for being interrupted. So you can only yeah. be at peace in a zone if you know that if the house was on fire, somebody would tell you, right? <laughs> you know. Right. So right. you need to have agreements, whether you work at home, have agreements with your family about when they should and should not interrupt you, or with your coworkers about when they should and should not interrupt you, and that goes two ways. And so that's an that that we call it, uh, you know, communicating about communicating uh, right. is so crucial. Is to have those agreements so that we can find, carve out those, maybe you know, for some people it's two hours a day, for some people it's two hours a week, you know. But carving out certain portions of uninterrupted time help us to get our work done faster, but also just not to be so exhausted and not. Not to be able to get the quality out of your brain that, that you need and not to overwork and stress out your brain.
0: Funny, this has been such a great conversation. And, you know, I, I'm like, we've talked about one of the 21 tools that you mentioned well, in the. You no, know,
1: we did the first aid kit and we did zones. So that's two. Well, that's, that's true. Two. There we go. Two. We
0: did two. So we'll celebrate that. And there are people who go, but I need to know about the other 19. Um, so if, will you tell us where people can find that, that download of the first aid kit?
1: So if you go to microresilience.com and you scroll down, there's a, a form you can fill out and submit and we'll give you, uh, the, the PDF and then there's a Ted talk that goes with it. And so there's, there's resources you can use to create a team building event, but also if you sign up, uh, on social media with me, whether you like LinkedIn or Twitter or even Facebook uh, or Instagram, we are constantly giving tips on these things too. So there's That's lots right. of different ways to uh, that we can help.
0: Perfect. Bonnie St. John, you are awesome. Thank you so much for being part of this. It's been fantastic.
1: Thank you. And uh, keep on doing the great work. You're such a good force for good.
0: Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52 week, 52 teacher, absolutely free video based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had. That is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.